I think when you look at the news and there's something intriguing or exciting or even threatening but interesting, it gives you that little rush. And we are not a society anymore that's used to long periods of quiet time without input. We're inundated all the time, and so you have to keep increasing the load to keep it exciting. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more creative, productive, and resilient, all through the simple act of slowing down. Now, I think we can all agree that when you're trying to do creative work, feeling anxious has an extremely negative impact on your productivity. You just can't get into a flow state when you're all worked up and your central nervous system is operating on overdrive. And so today, we're going to talk about one of the key contributors to overworry in 2018, your media diet and why cramming a constant stream of news into your brain ratchets up your stress levels and sends your anxiety skyrocketing. My guest is Mary McNaughton Castle, a professor at UT San Antonio and a clinical psychologist who studies stress and coping, with a particular focus on how the news cycle affects our well-being. Our conversation focuses on understanding the psychology that drives our addiction to the news, and how we can redesign our media diets with self-care in mind. Along the way, we touch on why we don't get happy endings in the news and what that does to our brains, and how taking action on a local level can soothe our worries about global concerns that are out of our control. Let's dive in. So since the introduction of the 24-7 news cycle. Obviously, a lot of other developments have happened, the explosion of the internet, the smartphones, social media. How do you think that our media diets have continued to evolve since the beginning of that 24-7 news cycle? I think it has been a really subtle creep. So we didn't really pay attention to it as it was happening. The 24-hour news programming came in and people started being used to tuning in to the news when they wanted or knowing that it would be repeated later, which was quite different than the days when pre-VCRs, if you missed a show on TV, you missed it. You didn't get to hear it again. And then, of course, with the internet, it increases selectivity so you can go to the sources or channels you like. But many of my college students tell me that they get most, if not all, of their news through social media. And they sort of describe social media as a filter. They'll say things like, well, if it's really important, someone will post it or let me know. And that way I don't have to follow all of the nuances. Now, on one hand, that could be problematic because you're relying on someone else to create your filter. But on another hand, I see it in a way as an adaptive way to limit that never-ending flow that overwhelms us. But do you think that there, I mean, I think one of the things about social media and um, in your book, you talk about the more frequently and the more prominently a story is covered, the more likely that it is to influence us. You know, and certainly if you look at something like Twitter or, you know, Facebook um, or other forms of social media, there really are the sort of amplifier and in many ways kind of an echo chamber. So you'll see, you know, the same news item again, again, again. And then of course, you know, these escalating potentially reactions to it. Um, How do you think that that aspect of getting news through social media is impacting us? Well, I think it's a very complicated cycle. If you look at the data that folks in the communications field have accumulated, they look at things like how sensational news coverage is now, how catastrophic the reports are. And there's definitely been a trend towards making the content of news more gripping, probably more scary to catch people's attention. Then things are repeated more. And we know from cognitive psych that if you hear something a lot, it starts to seem more familiar or more accurate. And we also know that over time, we'll forget the source and remember the piece of information. So one of the problems that happens with social media is you don't know if somebody is sending you an actual news report, 
done by a reporter who checked their facts or somebody's blog or meme or opinion, but those kind of background episodic details drop out and you start to think, well, I heard it, everyone's heard it, it must be true. So there's an amplifying effect. And then of course we don't have random friends. So our friends may be more likely to give us certain sorts of content, certain kinds of feedback. And then again, what we choose to pass on is also an amplifying fact. And so in a way, I've heard people describe it as sort of echo chambers where you just keep hearing the same information and it's possible to very much insulate yourself from anything that's different than what you already believe. Right. You're talking about there's almost a sort of attention arms race. And so news organizations are kind of, you know, constantly, um, you know, ratcheting up um, maybe, you know, the volume or the intensity of the type of coverage that they're doing. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how that kind of ties into this sort of primal, um, you know, need that we have to pay attention to things that we see as threats? Absolutely. There's a whole body of literature called risk and threat assessment. And one of the key folks there is a researcher named Paul Slovak. And he looked a lot at what people consider when they're thinking about something being threatening or scary, which, of course, we're somewhat predisposed to pay attention to, because if you know a threat is coming, you have a chance of averting it or minimizing the effect. And some of the factors that we look at are how unfamiliar or exotic the threat is, how many people would be affected, whether, you know, two people versus 2,000, whether or not it involves technology. And I'm not sure that news sources actually took his research and numbered their points and said, well, let's make all our stories fit these criteria. But what they have done is realize that if you're a local news channel or if you're trying to get someone to click on you online, you're competing with reality programming, entertainment, games. And so you have to have a hook and you have to have something that makes it seem very relevant to the person you're trying to attract. And for good or for bad, our brains do seem to lean towards negative information, probably again because of the survival value. So if you open a story with a brutal robbery uh, in your town, could this happen to you? You're more likely to get people than if you say something about, well, there was an incident, but it happened in an, a rare place and it's unlikely to happen to you. The other thing is that we like novelty. So stories about disasters, stories about uh, war, trauma, are more likely to catch our attention than a story about something that we maybe falsely see as more mundane, like cardiovascular disease, which is actually, for most people, statistically much more likely to occur in their life than encountering a terrorist attack. But we don't always filter those things when we're paying attention to the incoming newsfeed. Right. Well, that really feeds into this sort of addiction that we have as well, right? Because there is almost this sort of primal urge to assess these threats. And when news organizations are, you know, trying as much as possible to focus on that type of material, it's really difficult for us to look away, isn't it? And I mean, I th I'm curious in the context of, I mean, I think a lot of us um, you know, judge ourselves or, you know, sometimes kind of beat ourselves up for getting so addicted to the news cycle, but there is almost, you know, this sort of primal, I don't know, urge baked into the addiction in a way. Absolutely. I think it's two things. One again, is that need to know. So when we were out on the savannah or in the jungle, you wanted to know that the red berries were poisonous or where you found the good food source or where the threats came from. And so it's very likely that we are wired to pay attention to those kinds of threatening things. But the other piece of it is that you can learn vicariously. It doesn't have to be a threat that happened directly to you. So people will laugh about folks slowing down to look at a car accident. And there may be something about you know voyeurism, but part of it is always thinking. What kind of car were they in? What happened? Would that happen to me? What would I do? 
So there's a warning element to it. And I think we view the news that way, too. I, I always laugh about the local news because if there has been a fire or a robbery or anything else in the leader, they don't tell you where it was. And the first thing you want to know is, well, that ATM where the person got robbed, it's in a part of the city I never go to at a time I wouldn't go to, so I'm fine. Or that is something I could do, and that would be very threatening. So there's a real component to using the news to figure out our own safety. But I also think that we use the news to offset boredom, frustration, and just our day-to-day kind of routine. And I suspect a lot of us would admit to popping the news open when we sit down at our desk and don't really feel like answering email or feel a little bored with things that are going on. And again, just like with social media, you get a little bit of a dopamine rise if you open Facebook and someone has sent you a message. I think when you look at the news and there's something intriguing or exciting or even threatening but interesting, it gives you that little rush. And we are not a society anymore that's used to long periods of quiet time without input. We're inundated all the time. And so you have to keep increasing the load to keep it exciting. When what do you think is the upshot of that continual escalation, this, you know, um, kind of constant media overload and intake of this, you know, kind of predominantly negative news cycle? Well, in my early research, I really wanted to be able to show a link between how much you watch the news and perhaps mood issues like increased depression or anxiety or anger. That has not panned out in the sense that watching lots of negative news, even about an event like 911 or a hurricane, doesn't make you clinically depressed or clinically anxious according to the criteria we would use if we were diagnosing someone. However, it does affect mood. It does people does make people feel more angry or sad or even anxious about the future. And I suspect that there's a bit of a cumulative effect. So when you look at measures, for example, of trust, how much do people trust the media, their doctor, professors, politicians, those trust ratings have been dropping since the 60s. And what we know objectively is that we know more about medicine now than we did in the 60s. And there have always been politicians that were not trustworthy, but I think we're back to your point about the news happening sort of over and over and over. So what people are internalizing is this constant stream of information. So things must be worse. It must be more terrible than it ever was before. And so I think of it in terms of a malaise, sort of a general feeling that things are not well. And again, I would contrast that to some pretty objective measures like our increasing rates of longevity. We are living longer than people before, even though we're terrified about obesity and all the chemicals in our food and all of the other threats. And more people in the world are living better lives in terms of things like human rights. If you look at some of the overall human rights watch groups, but we don't hear a lot about the improvements. We hear about the places where things are really bad. And so we're getting a colored view, I think. Well, and what about um, apathy? Do you see that, you know, kind of a, mm-hmm. I mean, you use the term malaise, but, you know, sort of an almost kind of par- paralysis or, you know, sort of um, uh, distancing um, of oneself as a result of, um, you know, constantly experiencing this sort of negativity? Is that something that you've seen in research or just kind of with your students more anecdotally? Yes. Uh, yes to both. But I think it's a funny question. Because on the one hand, we will criticize people for rubbernecking at an accident and we'll say, you know, it's terrible that people are addicted to their phones and they're sitting in a restaurant and they're all looking at their news feeds. And then we'll turn around and say, but it's terrible that they turn off the commercials of the starving kids or the abused animals or Americans have become sort of acclimated to bad news and they just tune it out. And I think it's probably far more nuanced than that. 
So, yes, if you see the same bad news over and over, it is likely to become more familiar so it can become normalized. But also, I think tuning things out may have a valid psychological precedent. If you really got up in the morning and thought about every possible risk, there could be a fire in your house from the plug to your coffee pot, you could get in an accident on the way to work, you're going to get exposed to somebody who has a flu virus, I mean, you wouldn't be able to get out of bed. So we approach our daily lives with the idea that we're in control and we'll anticipate risk. And to some degree, we dismiss risks, which is useful because most of the things we could worry about won't happen. And I think it's probably not a bad idea to do that to some degree with the news, too. You can't absorb every bad thing in the world. And in fact, people never had to before because prior to really radio and television, the problem was not getting too much news. It was not getting enough news. And so newspapers arrived months after events had happened. People struggled to figure out what was going on on other continents. And so you didn't have this problem of trying to filter it for yourself. You were looking for the information. And so I suspect a lot of us have sort of unconsciously adopted filters, which may sometimes keep us from paying attention to something important But as I said at the opening, this whole news generation creep has happened just slowly enough that we've all tried to keep absorbing the changes. And we're just now starting to say, I don't know how many more changes I can take. I'm starting to feel like I'm at overload here. It's time to pause for a quick message from our sponsors. But stay tuned because after the break, Mary and I get into the psychology of why the news makes us feel so out of control and some very practical tips for how to tweak your media diet to reduce your anxiety. This episode is sponsored by Hover. To learn a little bit more about them, I did a mini interview with Kai Brock, a customer and the creator of one of my favorite print publications about life, work, and technology, Offscreen Magazine. You describe off-screen as having a human-centered approach. What does that mean exactly for you? Uh, when we talk about technology nowadays, especially in mainstream media, it's often just about monetary success. And I think with off-screen, I wanted to become a voice that highlights that technology is, most of all, is about creating tools that help us become better humans. And most importantly, help us all. So it's not just about some rich white guys in Silicon Valley. It's about creating inclusionary tools that help everyone get onto the bandwagon of of technology. Do you feel like Hover has a human-centered approach? For me, it's a tool. And I need that tool to be easy and fast and reliable. The website and the interface is quite minimal, which is exactly what I want from from a tool like that. On the other hand, every time I had interaction with Hava and when I go through their blog and and read some of the customer stories, I think that's exactly what you just said. It's a human approach. It's it's minimal, but at the same time, it it actually connects with people and is responsive to to customer uh, questions and feedback. And that's exactly what you want from any company, really. You want it to be getting out of the way when you need to get stuff done. But when you need them to be in your life, they're, you know, fast and responsive. Hover. Getting out of your way when you need to get stuff done? Fast and responsive when you need them. Head on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first domain purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. When you use an interesting word, which is control, and I think... um, you know, you've talked about how in this sort of 24-7 news cycle, and particularly in this right very global news cycle where you can, you know, hear about a, right, you know, a terrible terrorist attack happens in, you know, Barcelona or happens in Paris and, you know, or a mm-hmm. terrible fire happens in London. You hear about it more or less instantaneously that, that we're then more, we're, we're now living in this world where we're at a risk of getting stressed out about events that are happening far away from us and over which we have little to no control. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that, this kind of aspect of control or lack thereof? Absolutely, and it's a huge issue because throughout history, people really had very little control. In agricultural communities, you were growing food. If it was a drought year or a flood year, you might 
lose all of your food supply, but you were working in a very constrained environment. So it was your farm, you were growing your food. If things didn't work, you would move your family. So you didn't feel all the time that your well-being was part of this larger interconnected food chain. Now, of course, as we started forming cities, that changed. But again, prior to all of the media and the social media and other things, you could live in London, but your world was probably a fairly limited neighborhood. And you didn't have a lot of awareness of what was going on outside of that area. And part of the reason I think there's so much anxiety about globalization now is that we have really created a world where it's almost impossible not to be dependent, not just on the people in your neighborhood or your family, but the greater economy of the country, the rest of the world. You know, you look at one of the news stories, you'll see that'll show you where all the parts of your car come from, and you realize that even the politics in Mexico or someone else might influence things you want to do. So it's a different view of control today. And in the world we live in now, many, if not most of the stressors that we experience are things we can't directly control. And we need to find ways to make people more resilient and more proactive. But unfortunately, I think one thing that people do when they get scared about lack of control and being unable to prevent things is they try to go backwards. They want to shrink the world back to a time when it was simpler. And they'll say, I'm going to grow all my own food, or I'm going to go off the grid again, or I'm going to you know, try to return um, my kids. You know, I'm going to keep my kids from watching TV because then their childhood will be like mine. And the problem is you can't reverse those things. But even there in the world we're in, you, you still are really just getting an illusion of control. It's not real control. Well, to go a little bit more deeply into this idea of control and self-efficacy, um, in an earlier conversation that you and I had, we were one of the things that you had touched on was to, uh, I guess, sort of go back to what we were talking about earlier. This idea of you know the media focusing on threats, and you were talking about how one of the things that's really interesting about sort of the mechanics behind that is that. Um, we never hear how those stories finish. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. That's a fascinating idea to me. Because another thing we know now from cognitive psychology is that the human brain likes stories. That's how we organize our memories, our facts, how we interpret things. If I have you read a story and I leave out a key piece of information, like the beginning of the story, you're on one side of the river, and at the end of the story, you're on the other side. I didn't tell you how that happened in the story, but I asked you later, people will make up a logical piece. They'll bridge that even though it wasn't in the story. But I don't think we get that in our news. We get a constant stream of the front side, the problem, the crisis, the difficulty. Every once in a while, there will be an in-depth report or if you really seek out a longer article, you might find something but we aren't following through to say, gosh, this threat did not turn out to be as severe as we expected, or things went differently, or this community group did something to change it, or this policy made a difference. And there's a group that I urge everyone to look at. It's uh, called Solutions Journalism, a group of reporters who have come together, created a website you can go to, to try to focus more on talking about outcomes and solutions. And one of the arguments they make that I think is very compelling is the idea that when there wasn't very much news available and it was hard to communicate across distances, you really had to rely on the media to do those in-depth, let's figure out the scandal, let's find out what's going on behind the scenes kind of stories. And we still need those now, but there's so many media outlets and so much going on that that's all we're doing, and we really aren't following up. Now, some folks will say nobody wants to see stories about you know, happy endings in the news, but I'm not sure that's true because if you look at social media, it is just awash 
with upbeat stories, sites like Upworthy, I think people would like to hear how things turn out. But the the problem in the news media cycle, and this is not entirely, I don't even think this is a problem of most reporters and journalists, is that they have very limited time or space. And then the economic forces, you have to have the hook that will get people to watch, that will get the advertising. And it might be harder to generate that for a follow-up story on something that you've been looking at. You know, I know you were saying, of course, we can't go back in time and and nor should we want to. And it's a, you know, fairly uh, useless and, and maybe even slightly toxic endeavor to think about doing that. But when we spoke previously, you were kind of using um, an example, I think of your ancestors and kind of talking about like, uh, you know, when you are only dealing with news and getting information from your local community and how that kind of gave you this agency to finish the story in a way. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then I kind of want to loop back to like maybe how that relates to, to the present. That stems from an assignment I have the students in my stress management class do. And of course, they're college students. Our age range here is from about 17 to early 30s. So they're not all millennials. But part of the question is go home and find out as much as you can about one of your great-grandparents. And of course, a lot of times in families, we don't talk a lot about where our families came from, what they did. I give the students a set of questions about how long people lived, what kinds of stressors they experienced, how many children they had, and how many of those children made it to adulthood. And I always use the examples of my dad's family up in northern Maine in a very small town. And in a town of 2,000 people, people, you know, I had one aunt who had never been further south than Boston. She's been her whole life in the state of Maine and probably met fewer new people that she didn't know in weeks or months than you and I will in the grocery store on our way home tonight. Mm-hmm. So there's a different set of stressors just in terms of our social encounters and the range of people and differences we run into But also when you live in a small town, particularly up in cold weather areas during the Depression, you know, my relatives, they experienced disasters. Houses burnt down. They didn't have enough food. But there was a community of people around you who would lend you coats and could help you. And sometimes when we're living in larger, more disconnected cities, I think people lack that connection, which ties to another psych concept of social support, which turns out to be really important for mental health. So I sometimes say to people who feel really stressed, well, well, let's do this exercise. Let's think about the stressors in your life. Most likely, you haven't had a kid who died. Now, in 1900, about 15% of kids died before they made it to a year old. From things like whooping cough and measles and things that we have largely eradicated, However, our relatives probably also had a lot more downtime, a lot more quiet time, probably had less deadlines, more time outside, more exercise. So there were some things that would promote mental, good mental health that were just part of their daily life that we've taken out as we drive and sit in front of computers and are in rooms with no normal exterior lighting and those things. So we have some different levels of stress. And again, to go back to a psych analogy, Abraham Maslow had created his sort of pyramid of well-being. You probably remember we're at the bottom. Mm -hmm. If you don't have food and water, then nothing else matters. And once you have food and water, it's security. And then it's belonging. And at the very top is the self-actualization. And a lot of times I describe modern life as stressors that are common to the middle of the pyramid. And of course, there could be a disaster and we'd suddenly be plunged lower down. But for most of us, most of the time, we probably do have less life-threatening day-to-day events than some of our relatives did. But we have more hassles, pressures, social kinds of things. And again, like you said, the control and the agency. I was listening to NPR yesterday and there was a report about how many people are now raising chickens and their own eggs, which everyone sees as this way to have 
to kind of go back. Like you said, well, I'm going to have healthy food, and if I raise my own chickens and eggs, I'll know that they haven't been tampered with genetically. And so, of course, what's happened? Now we have a major outbreak of salmonella. So there are always problems, and it's easy to forget that some of those things that looked easier when we, in our ancestors' lives, were deadly to them too. But, but my point in that exercise is to say that we've changed in a couple generations in ways that, that no one could have anticipated, and we're just now starting to think about how do we cope with that? What do we do to bring this to a level that I can manage in my own life? Yeah, well, and I think that's what's so interesting about this particular idea and your kind of notion of finishing the story is that when we're living in this world where, you know, we're just getting so much information on a global level and hearing about so many things that are happening distantly, um, you know, just to think about the past as a point of comparison, you know, to where you were living in a small town and, uh, you know, you weren't getting any type of, of global news or if you were, it was weeks or even months after the fact, but that the things that you were concerned with or the crises or disasters that you were concerned with were very local. So, right, like a barn burns down and then everyone comes together to rebuild that barn. And so you kind of have the disaster, but you also have, as you were saying, like the resolution and you kind of get that follow-up of the story because your whole purview is very local. And there's something about that, right. That feels, um, I guess in a way like sort of mentally, um, <laughs> more satisfying, but also like, right. That, that feeling of agency that you have that we don't have now as much. That is the perfect example. And you see it all the time, you know, hurricane Katrina happens and they end up with too many donations or there's a shooting and there are so many people volunteering to give blood, they have to turn them away. I don't think that impulse to help has gone anywhere. I just think that it is much harder to find a way that feels like you're helping in any meaningful way when most of the disasters you're hearing about are somewhere far away from you and there isn't anything tangible you can do right away. So one of the things I focus on in my stress class is to have people then figure out what sorts of stressful events on a global level bother them. So are you worried about climate or animal abuse or children or politics? And shrink it down mentally now since our world isn't as shrunken down anymore. So you can't fix elephant poaching in Africa, but you can go volunteer at your um, you know, SPCA or one of the animal care facilities. You find ways to do tangible things that do make a difference. Interestingly, I did a study a while ago, but we looked at how people saw the world in their own communities. So we asked them about education, people, economics, and then ask the same questions about how they saw the country in general. And it confirmed what we're talking about, which is that in their own neighborhoods, schools, and communities, people saw much more reason for hope. They saw positive people, positive interactions. Even people living in areas that you might, from an outside view, say, well, that's not a very intriguing place to live, actually found good things in their neighborhood. But what we universally do is judge the communities or the country or the world that we don't know personally from what we hear in the news, and then it is skewed. So in San Antonio, you might live in a neighborhood that has a fairly high crime rate, but you know the police, you know the educators at school, your kids are in an after-school program, and you feel like you are in a good place, but I ask you how you'd feel about going to New York, and you say, oh, I'm not going there. That's just a hotbed of crime. Everyone gets shot on the corner. So that optimism about what you really know in your real life where you know the rest of the story and the world where all you've seen is the front half of the story, I think is a big part of the problem. Right. And so if we are feeling particularly stressed um, or anxious, you know, and, and particularly feeling like some of that's coming out of the news cycle, then you know, maybe the solution is to, as you were saying, this is this exercise you do with your students to 
um, you know, identify the issues that you are passionate about and try to see how you literally can address them at a very local level so that you give yourself back some of that agency and that that can be its own sort of coping mechanism in a way. Absolutely. I trained in cognitive behavioral psychology, so that's what I would use in therapy. And the kind of suggestions I give people for managing the news media and other things are not different than the solutions I would give them if they're in a job they don't like or a relationship they don't like. The premise of cognitive behavioral therapy is that you can't always change the environment, but you can change your attributions and your interpretations of it. And that will, in turn, influence how you feel and how you behave. And I think we're in a world right now where it is very easy to be cynical, to be negative, to add up all the things that we don't feel are going our way, to be nostalgic about sort of our um, censored views of how things used to be. And cognitive behavioral therapy takes work. You have to say, gosh, I am making this assumption and maybe it's not based on reality. And maybe I need to look at where I'm getting my news or why I'm responding to that information that way. And then I have to actually get out there and find a behavior that is feasible in my world that I can do. You know, for a lot of students, especially here at UTSA where I teach, they're working students putting themselves through college. They're not in a position to make donations or do things financially, but there are lots of volunteer opportunities. And so many students who tell me they're overwhelmed by the world, their major school, stress, the future, will come back and say, ironically, volunteering made me feel better because at least that was one area where I could make a difference. And I think that's hard to see. So much of modern life is intangible. I think that's a good, it's a good moment to transition to maybe thinking about this a little bit more sort of pragmatically as you're describing, um, you know, so is one of the ways that, you know, if people are feeling, um, overwhelmed by information, overwhelmed by the news kind of, you know, just uh, like it's, it's affecting them in terms of the negativity. What are some ways that we can start to really deal with that? I think, um, one of the things that, that you and I had spoken about before was really trying to identify perhaps within the news media, what are your, you know, sort of biggest stressors, you know, and maybe that's images or something else. Exactly. Well, the way I got into this research at all, I think I had shared with you is that on the morning of the Oklahoma City bombing, I was at work and then I was picking my daughters up at their preschool and I was listening to the news and it was just leaking out that there had been a preschool and it had been bombed and that there were fatalities. And I remember just being overwhelmed with anxiety. How would I feel if I drove up to my kid's school and the physical school was gone? So that's when I started thinking, you know, the way we get media now and the way it's covered, you don't have to live there to find ways to have it influence you and your life and your responses. And so I think part of the question is topics. There are just going to be things that you are sensitive to because of your history, your personality, your life circumstances. And then the other is sort of the way you absorb media. Some people can watch every action and horror movie out there and sleep fine at night. Other people see one gruesome image and it keeps them awake for weeks. So you need, again, to really spend some time thinking about yourself. For me, I don't like images of violence. I would rather not watch the television news because by the time I've decided I didn't want to see it, I've already seen it. So I rely on radio or reading. But everybody has to figure that out for themselves. And I also think we need to really look at a couple of things. The time that we're spending on that habit or activity and the circumstances around it. You know, if you wanted to quit smoking or you wanted to diet, I would have you keep a record for a few days of when you feel the urge to smoke. 
and how much you smoke and why you did it and how you feel when you do it. And I think it's useful to do that about your news media. You know, how often do you check the feed or just have the TV on in the background because you want company or what are the factors? And then you can make some really rational decisions about how to to set up parameters that allow you to know what you need to know without feeding into this sense of constant anxiety and panic about the whole world. And as we've been talking about this, I've kind of been like making notes on, I think, the different things that people might reflect on in terms of, you know, what their media diet looks like. And we were talking about the the first one is sort of dosage, like, you know, how long do you want to be on social media or how much time do you want to spend reading magazines? Um, The second is sort of topics, as you were saying, everyone has sort of topics that get them a little bit more riled up that you might want to avoid. And then the third is pace, you know, maybe thinking about like, well, is, is the breakneck pace of social media the best way for me to take in news? Or would it be better to, you know, be reading um, weekly magazines with long form journalism that offers a little bit more perspective? And then kind of thinking about, um, I think the fourth one would be format, you know, as you're talking about, like, what about visuals? What about pictures? Maybe that's not the best way for me to take things in. Maybe radio is better. Are you listening to outlets that are sort of relentlessly negative? Or do you want to listen to outlets? You know, I prefer NPR because it's sort of a mix of like upbeat stories as well as, you know, kind of more political or maybe more negative stories and thinking about that balance too. Absolutely. And I would add the other one is, what is your mood or your need emotionally or otherwise when you turn to news? Most of us are in jobs now that require long stretches of attention. We never quite get away from our work any more than we get away from the news. And the Internet and social media are really good ways to procrastinate. You might be doing them when you're bored. You're just looking for anything to think about besides what you're supposed to be doing. Or for escape, students tell me now that their apartment's never been cleaner than the night before a test because they're so anxious about studying. <laughs> and, I, and I think sometimes we aren't going to the media at all because we want more news. We're just doing it to deal with something going on in our life. And so then, of course, the solution is to figure out a different thing to do. When I ask my college students to track a 24-hour period and see how much time they spend awake Without any input, either from people or electronically, it's less than an hour. And if you were to compare that to our grandparents, you know, they spent hours a day plowing, walking to school, cooking. They didn't have electronic input. So from a very practical standpoint, we're asking our brains to process volumes of information that the brain did not evolve to process. And it takes energy to do that. And there are studies that show that Thinking all day, even if you're sitting at a desk, burns glucose at a brain level. And so I think one of the things that the news feeds into, but just our daily lives feeds into, is our our tendency to feel like, well, I didn't do a lot of things physically, or I wasn't active, or I didn't finish a lot of projects, so I wasn't really doing things. But at a central nervous system level, you're putting a huge strain on the system. And then I think... And again, I'd like to do more research on this, but when I ask college students, the perennial question from adults, people say this to me all the time, college students don't want to talk in person anymore. They just want to text. And I suspect if I collect the data, we'll find out that that's not true. I think they see so many people just going to and from class and work. They have large networks of friends because they can stay in touch with everybody back to elementary school because of Facebook and Twitter and everything else. And they revert to texting because sometimes they're just tired of putting all the social energy into interacting. And so it, again, is almost a coping mechanism. But when I ask what is the major reason you use text, it's to organize get-togethers. They're not not meeting, but they're putting in 50 texts to get the whole group together at the same time in the same place. What do you think is the long-term impact of that? You're talking about the impact on, you know, the, the sort of strain that it puts on the central nervous system is, you know, is it, is it more stress? Is it, is it ill health? Is it, 
you know, an inability to think clearly? Is it all of those things? It's probably some of all of those things. And if you've ever gotten home from work and said, I don't know what I did today, but I feel exhausted and I just can't think. I feel fuzzy. That's probably what happened. Now, do I think it'll be a long-term effect? I don't know, because we've never changed the society and the culture so quickly. So we're out of front, in front of evolution right now. I mean, to me, the miracle is that the brains that have been an operating system for thousands of years can drive at 70 miles an hour, talk on the phone, and look at the GPS at the same time. There is no precedent for our brain being able to respond with reaction time responses at 70 miles an hour. The fastest it could ever go in the past was a horse or a wind, you know, sailing. So we're already adapting pretty well, and maybe over other generations we'll adapt better. But I think some of the exhaustion, probably some of the sort of ongoing depression and anxiety that people report feeling are part of this experiment where we're asking ourselves to do something that we really don't know how it's going to play out or how it will affect us. So on the flip side, I mean, what do you think um, would energize people? What do you think would, would help kind of, you know, maybe combat that uh, exhaustion a bit? Well, and again, it's, it's, not, it's not an earth-shattering answer, but, you know, our relatives had a lot of outdoor exposure, natural light, exercise, all of those things. And now we actually have to physically put them in our schedule. I mean, if you had told your great-grandfather that you had to schedule time to walk, he probably would have laughed at you. <laughs> but we do. So I think the antidote is to create more downtime. From a psych point of view, I would say that, you know, the fight-or-flight response, the active, ongoing, that's the sympathetic nervous system, and the resting state, the parasympathetic system, we don't, we don't leave as much time for that. So it's all the things that people are already saying. Exercise, get outside, hang around animals, grow plants, get enough sleep. Those downtime kinds of activities. And my students find it hard, but they like it if they will challenge themselves to take a little bit of an electronic break. I don't typically say, you know, you can't use your electronics at all for a week. I start really small and just say, what if you deliberately took an hour off every night before you went to bed and turned it all off? How would that feel? And I think it's a fun experiment to see what would make you feel better without going all or nothing and saying, well, I'm going to throw it all out the window. But it's crept up on us. And, and this always happens with technology. You know, we got nuclear weapons, we used them, and then we said, oh, what are the ethics of this? And it's happening in medicine right now. We can keep people alive. We have premature infants and elderly folks. And we're saying, yeah, but what's the quality of life for that person? And I think on a personal level, personal technology crept in in that same pattern. We all said, okay, we'll get an answering machine and a cell phone and Facebook and email and Snapchat and Twitter. And all of a sudden we're saying, huh, we didn't really think about how to manage that. And there's cultural solutions, things like solutions journalism may help. But I think the immediate solution is for each of us to take responsibility and say, I can manage this for myself as one of the stressors of modern life. It's not the same as having to go out and hunt my food, but it might be just as important for my physical and mental health that I learn how to structure this. As Mary noted, technology has a way of creeping up on us. Before we know it, we've adapted to a completely new normal without even realizing it. And our media diets are the perfect example. We all kind of have this basic idea that to be an engaged citizen, you need to stay on top of the news. And as the pace of the news cycle has gradually ratcheted up and up and up over the past 10 years, we haven't revised that expectation. To the point where getting a notification in the middle of the night on your phone from CNN about a crisis halfway across the world seems totally reasonable. But is it? Is metabolizing so much news that you're almost paralyzed with anger or anxiety 
really doing anyone any good? Or is it better to consume the news at your own pace in an amount that feels manageable? So that maybe, just maybe, you have a little bit of empathy and energy left over to take action in small ways that seem doable. I think we both know the answer. On next week's episode, I'll be diving deep into the topic of exquisite attention with Jonathan Fields, an entrepreneur, a writer, a yogi, and the host of the popular podcast, The Good Life Project. We'll be talking about how tapping into exquisite attention can unlock new possibilities for luck, connection, and creation. As always, if you'd like to be notified when a new episode comes out, you can sign up for my newsletter at the podcast website at hurryslowly.co. And I should note that this isn't just a, hey, here's a new episode email. It's a lovingly curated selection of links and articles about how to find more meaning and creativity in your daily work. This episode was produced by Matt Susich, and our soothing theme music was created by Devin Craig Johnson. If you took something useful away from this episode, I would be eternally grateful if you left us a review on iTunes. All of those gold stars really do help us find new listeners and spread the word about the show. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember to digest the news slowly. Slowly.